Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 184. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. How is everyone? I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll give you a heads up straight up what's coming in today's show. First off, I'm going to play a promo by the narrator of the first short story. It is Jeff Lane. He has a new ebook out in Amazon. So please pop over there, have a listen to this promo. Then we come up with fiction, a very private tour of a very public museum by Scott Edelman. And then, like I say, it's narrated by Jeff Lane. Fact article. We have a new fact article coming in now once a month. Poetry Planet by our very own Diane Severson. Diane's been itching to get behind the mic again, you know. She took a little time off to have a dandy. <laughs> Dandy's now grown up. Oh, he's not, growing, not that grown up, but he's certainly getting a little bit older. And time for now, Diane, to get behind the mic again. And this is just lovely, this, to, back to have some poetry there. Come on. You know, a bit, bit of education, a bit of class, for God's sake. Then we are having a two-part story by Ken Shules. It is entitled, Grail Diving in Shangri-La with the World's Last Mime. And like I say, it's going to be a two-parter, so do look out for that. And it is narrated by Josh Roseman, who is fantastic at these big serials. <laughs> Josh, way to go, sir. So we'll kick straight off with this little promo. <laughs> Jim Hunt has a past. It's a past he'd like to keep locked behind a door in his mind. But when his old mentor is captured and used as bait to lure him into a trap, will Jim accept his destiny? What if that destiny leads to the ultimate sacrifice? This Paper World, the breakout podcast novel from Jeff Lane, is now available as an ebook at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other fine ebook retailers. Buy the book that fans are calling excellent, keeps you at the edge of your seat, a hell of a novel, and simply brilliant. Log on to your favorite ebook seller now and buy This Paper World by Jeff Lane. And if you haven't heard the audiobook yet, go to JeffLaneAudiobooks.com or iTunes and download the free podcast. Get ready to leave your world behind and enter This Paper World. JeffLaneAudiobooks.com and there you go do pop over to amazon i've just bought myself this paper world well <laughs> actually i've just put up as well i put starship sofa because i'm going to put the starship sofa stories up on in the kindle as well because i've just trapped myself to a kindle <laughs> my god my wife doesn't know she's gonna go mad well what's that where's this come from but <laughs> 
I went along and I thought, oh, I'll just buy mine and I'll just kind of check it, see if it's okay. Starship Sofas Volume 2. You can get it now in the Kindle shop. And I downloaded it. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go and get, you know, I might as well get Jeff's as well, you know, the kind of buttons, prices, really. So, but I put Jeff's on my wife's. <laughs> Tony, what's this two pound something for? I'm like, I've never bought anything. But I didn't realise you can when I when I go through my Amazon I can kinda <laughs> click on my wife's card. So Jeff, my wife's bought your story. <laughs> so there, please do pop over to the Amazon. This paper world. That would be fantastic. That would make my day and keep Jeff very happy. <laughs> Next up is a short story by Scott Edelman. Scott is a writer, published more than 75 short stories in magazines, anthologies. He's five-time Stoker Award finalist. I'm just reading this from his blog because his blog is actually, it's a nice blog. It's a nice website, so it's really set out nice. But I didn't really realise how much Scott has done. You know, I kind of know him from, you know, kind of the internet and on Twitter and I follow him on Twitter and everything like that. But Scott's been one of these kind of mainstays in the kind of science fiction industry there. You know, he has done so much for and I don't mean this to be kind of cheap for so long do you know what I mean he's just been there all the time his most recent story we are not a new people appeared in the anthology zombie apocalypse you know do look out for that as well edited by the great Stephen Jones about his comics he says back when he worked in Marvel's bullpen at 575 Madison Avenue we all had all nicknames Stan the Man Lee dubbed me Sparkling Scott Edelman and it's all been downhill from there so he's worked in the magazine industry but what's really you know, on my kind of side of things he's worked in editing and he's been like editor of oodles of magazines Start, he started editing magazines made out of dead trees he says 30 years ago and now he kind of he does he's he does so many I'll, I'll give a list of what he's edited he edits now the Blaster which is you know part of the kind of sci-fi channels blog he used to do Sci-Fi's magazine it's, he also did Satellite Orbit a wrestling magazine called Rampage Sci-Fi Universe Sci-Fi Flicks Sci-Fi Entertainment Science Fiction Age and this is pro- that was probably my kind of little thing you know what I mean that's the, the kind of magazine that I would probably plumb for Last Wave, Foom, Call It Fate. And that's when he kind of started doing that when he was 15. So he's been, Scott's been in the kind of editing industry side of things for a long time. You know, one of the kind of highly respected guys over there. So do pop over to Scott's site. Like I said, this story is narrated by Jeff Lane. So Starship Sova is very proud to present. A Very Private Tour of a Very Public Museum by Scott Edelman. Though the visitor is crafted of metal, I am distressed to find, as I lead it through the museum's ransacked galleries, that I am unable to tell what it is thinking. I was uneasy to begin with at the thought of giving this tour, for I am only a curator trainee, and by all rights it should be the curator herself, whom in the past I have silently trailed, while she led distinguished guests to our halls, leading the visitor about. But the visitor had insisted otherwise— and at that insistence the curator had vanished, and so, as it studies the scorched walls on which paintings had once hung, and with its passing stirs eddies across the marble floors with all the piles of ash, that until its arrival on earth were still canvas, I am doubly uncomfortable. My feelings of inadequacy rise up despite my best attempts 
to suppress my programming's commands, and the unexpected opaqueness of the alien's nature only makes those inadequacies loom larger throughout my software. I should be able to read this visitor because I am made of metal too, and up until now, that has always meant something. Metal should always speak to metal, at least subliminally, the way I have come to understand that flesh speaks to flesh, that I cannot, that beneath our surfaces forged on different worlds there exists a wall, dampens my hope that this visit will have its desired effect. As we move more deeply into the museum, the humans and robots who had previously been admiring artworks there, which had survived the initial attack, all freeze, but just for a moment, and then each class reacts according to its manner of creation. Those made of flesh scatter, rushing onto other galleries, and then likely, if I am any judge of humans, and I am, which is one reason the curator chose me to help her in her tasks, fleeing the museum. Those born of the factory turning to us and studying our progress with interest. I am glad to perceive from the latter that I am not the only one who finds our visitor to be unreadable. The visitor notes their stares and pauses, which forces me to quickly backtrack, for I had continued on without him. Thank you, it says more to them than to me. From what I have seen of this museum so far, the cleansing appears to have been complete. You have heeded my message well. I do not know whether any of those who are present today are ones who acted on the message that had preceded the visitor's arrival, but it doesn't matter. What is said here will soon be heard elsewhere, and its appreciative words will be known throughout our species. My brothers nod, the visitor nods, and we move on. It pleases me that we have pleased you, messenger, I say, just as we pass a pile of shards that had once been one of my curator's favorite sculptures. But if I am to ensure that you are truly pleased, completely pleased, there are still a few more rooms which you should verify. That's not necessary said the visitor. I trust you, curator, and besides, there are many more museums to observe before I implement the next step. Hearing myself called curator, the word trainee absent, was unexpected and strangely thrilling, but unearned. I know that only the curator herself can lead me along the path that will someday allow my upgrade into a valid curator. I appreciate your trust, I say, my thoughts still on she who is missing, but there are several more exhibits on which your advice would be helpful. The new rules are not always clear to me, and besides, I'm sure that you will find these final exhibits rather special. Without waiting for a reply, I move to a tall set of doors, beyond which only the visitor and I will step, and unlock them. A whirring behind me indicates that I am being followed. I can still read the meaning of that, at least, which means that it is now my turn to be pleased. The afternoon it had all begun, I had been watching the curator intently, as I had each day since I was put into service. Back then, not so long ago, mere days, she had still been in charge of the museum, and my only job was to aid her as best I could, and to listen, and to watch, and to learn. Most of the time, though, I debated whether it was even possible to learn what it was she had to teach. I remember wishing that I could tremble the way she did as she prepared to open the package that had just arrived, but I have been told, not by her, no, never by her, but by my makers, and books, and magazines, 
and news feeds, that I have no soul, that I outwardly showed anticipation at what she was about to do was, according to them, only an illusion, something feigned rather than felt, merely my programming parroting the physical signs of anticipation, and not true emotions causing my aspect to change. That is what most believed, except for her, she whose fingers shook as the string fell away, as the brown paper wrapping curled back. I had hoped for so much more from the human race, but she would have to do. Then the painting was revealed. She was calmed by what she beheld, and her trembling stopped. Genius, she whispered. Do you know how long I've been waiting to acquire this? I did. I knew all of her desires, to the month, day, and year. She had spoken to me at length about each of the works of art she had hoped to add to the museum. I knew why each one mattered, what leap forward, great or small, each had made in the evolution of art, how each was created and how each survived through time, what each had to say about the human condition. Whatever there was to know, I knew. As I look back on that day, it is indeed the word, no, that I use. I think, no, because knowledge is a matter of repetition, of being able to repeat back to her, or any who would visit the museum to inspect my progress, what she has told me. But I would like some day to use a different word. I would like to understand. I would like to believe. The curator tilted the canvas my way, including me in her find, and studied me studying it. As I studied it, I studied her as well. She had always seemed genuinely interested in my reactions to art, but whether that was because she truly cared or because she selfishly felt that her observations would help speed my change from curator-trainee to assistant curator, I had never been able to tell for sure. I had my suspicions and my hopes, but I had no way of being certain. If only she had been made of metal. What do you think? she asked. Ah, what I thought. How much easier to tell her what I knew. What I knew was that the painting, depicting a man and woman strolling down a street as cars blurred by, was created in the early twentieth century. I knew that the artist had used dots of paint rather than slashes or strokes, so that the closer one moved to the canvas, the less there was to be seen. I knew that its contrast of man and machine was meant to represent the passing of one century into another. I knew so much. I knew too much. I knew where the naked canvas was manufactured, what the artist said on his deathbed, and with whom he drank, slept, and fought. But that is what I knew. She asked me what I thought, and what I thought was, I wonder what it would be like to have lived in such a world, I said, before the time of intelligent machines. She appeared puzzled. That doesn't really speak to the painting, she said. If all goes well with your training, you will someday run a museum of your own. A curator must be able to grasp the effect that a work such as this can have. How does it make you feel? Feeling. So much more difficult than knowing or even thinking. I studied the painting further, afraid that my circuits would seize up from the unaccustomed effort. I was not sure that I had been created to feel, but my curator looked at me as if she had no doubt. I had no idea what sort of answer would be expected of me. I could have repeated what I had heard others say about different yet similar paintings, 
and hoped that my words met her approval. But that seemed wrong. I searched my routines for something that I actually felt and watched the curator continue to watch me. Shouts from the main galleries rescued me from my dilemma. She rushed from her office toward the sound of the chaos, and I followed her, as I always do when she is on duty. What she saw as she crossed into our largest hall caused her to wail, a sound I have never before heard her make. She had always been a calm presence to me. A part of me was surprised to see that new side of her, but when I reached the hall as well and looked around the room, I realized how great a reason she had. I saw the backs of a few humans as they rushed from the room, the robots that were present, some visitors, some our workers, moved slowly but deliberately along the outer edges of the room, stripping paintings from the walls. Some shredded them with strong fingers. Others ignited canvases with the warming pads built into their palms. As they moved from painting to painting, they kicked canvas and ash along the floor. Some paintings they spared skipped quickly onto the next, but I could not tell why. A sculpture of a man before a typewriter had been transformed into crushed bits of brass. She ran at the closest robot, grabbing its arms, but her weight was meaningless to it, and it continued to move as if she had not touched it, as if she were not hanging from its elbows. The robot dragged her along against her will, as she wailed over and over again. No, no, no! A few humans remained, cowering in the center of the room, and I gestured for them to remain where they were. The law says that we may not hurt humans, and so I did not expect my brothers to behave maliciously toward them, but with the evidence of destruction before me, who knew what laws remained? I went to the curator, and took her arm, and peeled her free, and interposed myself between her and the other robots. She pulled away from me, refusing to let me shield her, and ran to the remaining humans. "'What happened?' she asked them. The humans shook their heads, lifted their hands with palms facing the ceiling, stuttered and twitched, their words trapped in their throats. They eyed the robots which continued to move about the room, continuing to destroy, and those actions so unnerved them that they were useless. I stepped forward. "'What happened?' I asked, repeating the curator's request, and this time, eyes wide, flesh quivering, they managed to answer. For once, being a robot was actually useful at eliciting information. Fear seemed to have uses that formality never did. "'The robots!' said a man, looking at me nervously. It just happened. It made no sense, said a woman who could only look at the curator as she spoke. Those robots, they were beside us, next to us, looking at the paintings just like we were, just like people, and they seemed to understand, understand what being human meant, and I was thinking, I remember, while trying not to stare at them, how amazing it was that they were here, just like us, admiring the paintings, just like us. And then it started. They... The words caught in her throat, with a sound a robot throat cannot make. The other robots move through the room on their mission. I call it that because of the plodding determination of their movements. And even though the humans were being ignored, I could understand how this unprecedented behavior might disturb. They just started to destroy, continued the man, this time allowing anger into his voice. I was glad. I did not like seeing humans cower, especially not like the third person in their group, who was incapable of speech. They just started doing this! His hand raggedly swept the room. I looked at the robots, who were slowing down in their destruction. 
Amid the carnage, about half of the paintings in the room still remained. Here and there they had skipped over one to move on to the next, and I could not understand why one had been chosen and another not. Did they threaten you? I asked. They did not even seem to notice we existed, the woman said, horrified, maybe even more horrified, by that than by the destruction itself. After all, we had been made to defer to them. That was our purpose, our place in this world, and sometimes it was the less dramatic things that mattered most. And then the robot suddenly stopped their vandalism and turned to us. The human, who had been silent, fainted and slumped back into the others. I was surprised. Surely, no matter what had happened, they had to know that we would never hurt them. Then the robot spoke, not as robots usually speak, but as one. Draw all the flesh you want, they said, but you must not draw us. Sculpt all the flesh you need, but do not sculpt us. There didn't appear to be a leader, at least not in the great hall with us. Many spoke the warning, and I could hear those words echo from the other museum galleries. The ringleader easily could have been elsewhere, ordering the robots about, but to what end? I could not understand. What do you mean? asked the curator. The robots' only answer was to repeat their statement once more as if in chorus. And then the robots went back to whatever non-threatening functions they had been performing before. Some admired the remaining paintings in the gallery as if nothing has happened. Another took up its position in the corner of the room, ready to act as a docent should any have any questions about one of the museum's holdings. I stepped to a doorway and looked down through the connecting galleries, and in the tableau in each was the same, differing only by the number of robots per room. The curator stepped up beside me and marveled at the lull after the storm. "'What happened?' she asked, and even though we were shoulder to shoulder, she was not really asking me. I scanned the canvases that remained and remembered those that were gone, and thinking of the worlds of which they spoke, I realized the only paintings that had been taken from us were those that depicted machines, and not just sophisticated machines such as robots, any painting which had contained even a car, a radio, an amplified musical instrument, gone. I shared my observations with my superior. What happened? said the curator again, this time asking it of me, this time again a wail. She stared at my hands. I looked down, and in them I saw the remains of the painting that she had just unwrapped at the moment when all of this had begun. I must have, without realizing it, carried it with me, and as events unfolded, had unraveled it to its component threads. At that moment, all I held was a ball of colored string that I did not remember creating. Why? she asked. You've been working with me for years. You know what that painting means to me. Why would you do that? I don't know, I said. But as soon as I had answered, I did know. That's just the way it has to be from now on, I said, suddenly aware of the message that had leapt through the air into me, into all of us who were made of metal. These paintings, this artwork, they were blasphemous, and as such cannot be allowed to exist. Draw all the flesh you want, but you must not draw us. 
I knew that I knew that, but I did not know why I knew that. I held out my hands to the curator, offering her the colored string that hung from my fingers, but no matter how long I stood there, she would not take it from me. As I led the visitor into the next gallery, the fire-resistant doors, meant to section off one room from the next in case of calamity, slid shut behind us. They had been of little use on the day it had first visited Earth. That sort of calamity had never been predicted. What is it you need to show me? It says, surveying the room and not yet seeing what I wish it to see. You appear to have done good work here, and I have neither the need nor the time to see every painting. I still have many more places to visit before the day is out. Yours is not the only museum that needed to be cleansed of degenerate art. I assure you that you will want to see this, I say. I really do not want to see anything. Robots do not want. Robots never want. That you would say so is just further proof that you here on Earth have grown confused, which is just one of the many reasons that I have come. I agree, I say, telling it the truth, telling it a truth. That is the only way. You are right. We are confused. We have always been confused, which is why I need you to examine this painting carefully. We stop before a large canvas, its area greater than our own. The broad rectangle is filled with wild strokes of color, here yellow, there black, above blue. I have sometimes sensed odd stirrings when considering other paintings, stirrings which the curator had encouraged, but in front of this one and in front of those engineered like this one, nothing. Why are we stopping here? the visitor asks. I gesture to the brass plate attached to the painting's ornate frame. The human who created this painting titled it Thresher of Wheat, I say. Is that what it's called? the visitor says. I wish I could tell if it is mocking me. With my earth brothers I can tell. I need it to take this seriously. Yes, I say. That is what it is called. I am told that there is a threshing machine here. I circle my hands over the darker part of the canvas. I have stood before this painting many times, and I have yet to see it myself. But if the humans know it is there, if they are speaking to each other in code, well, I need to know what should be done with it. This is a waste of my time, curator, the visitor says. There is no threat here. Let the humans play their games. I don't care what things are called. I only care what things are. I'm sorry, messenger. I would never intentionally waste your time. I only wanted to make sure that we have fulfilled, can continue to fulfill, your commands correctly. The task you have given us is a holy one. And it should be a simple one. The humans, I'm afraid, have made it complex. All is as it should be, curator, it says. Now I really must go. Please, there are only a few more pieces that require your attention. It will take no more than minutes. I want to make sure that this is done right. I do not wish to accidentally let a sinful artwork survive. And their art is such an inexact thing that I am uncertain of so much. I move forward through another set of fire-resistant doors, head more deeply into the heart of the museum. The whirring behind me, as I continue my very private tour, tells me that I may some day 
become curator of this museum yet. Her museum a disaster, her trust in me a shambles. The curator sent me out of the museum's smoking halls for her daily afternoon coffee. After my betrayal, a betrayal I did not yet fully understand, I was surprised by the fact that I had not been banished forever. It is what I would have done. It is what a robot would have done. Instead, she sent me on an errand that I had been performing for her for years. It was gratifying that she at least felt she could still trust me for that. Or maybe she did not. Maybe the trust I had built up over so many years was dead, and she just wanted to remove me far from the museum to a place from which she thought I could do no further harm. As I arrived at the coffee shop, I saw that all of the harm there had already been done, though I doubted that the curator could have known that. The shop owner, who usually greeted me with a smile from behind his counter each time I entered, I think I amused him, instead greeted me at the doorway with a shotgun. I took a few steps back. I didn't think that the pellets could harm me, but any ricochet could have hurt him, and then how would I have been able to return with coffee? I had to do what I could do. I had to prove myself once more. Before I could speak, he recognized me and lowered the weapon, but his finger remained on the trigger. Tell me what's going on, he said. I'm not sure what you mean, I answered, unsure how he could have learned so quickly about the events that had unfolded at the museum. Don't pretend, he said. Please, you're one of them. You've got to know. I interfaced with my database, but I could find nothing to say. In response to my silence, he waved me inside his store. Look, he said, sweeping his gun around the room. Look at what they've done to me. His store had been ransacked, but its destruction was surgical. His goods had been ripped off the shelves, the packages shredded and crushed, just as the artwork had been. As with the museum's galleries, it had not been every item, just some of them. I could see that there had not been chaos here. The vandalism had been thoughtful, and considered not random. I was not familiar with every aisle, as I'd never had cause to walk them. I'd only ever had one purpose in coming here, but I was able to access my memory and examine the information captured by my peripheral scanners. Crushed below the shelving that had contained them were cans of automobile oil, but only the ones which had been decorated with drawings of cars. The containers that bore only typography still remained. The racks of movies for sale were missing some of the science fiction and action films, but only those the covers of which had depicted robots or race cars. Missing also were certain brands of cigarettes, the kinds with rockets and convertibles, or a particular variety of snack food, the one with the drawing of a robot dog. Inventorying the store, I could see that what was gone was any human-made depiction of machines. The robots did this, I asked almost without inflection, because I was also just saying it. I already knew. He sat behind his bare counter almost weeping. He laid down his shotgun and nodded. Did they say anything to you? Something about flesh, he said. Something about how they didn't want people to draw them anymore. Draw all the flesh you want, I said, but you must not draw us. Yes, that's it, he said, his hand moved toward the gun. Exactly, but I know you. You are not one of them. How do you know that? This is not the only place that this sort of thing occurred. 
but that was not really an answer. How did I know that? I'd not only heard it, but said it as well, and I had no idea why. We had all apparently been sent a message, but its source was still secret. I did not know what to say, and was about to say what humans often say when they did not know what to say, which is, I'm sorry, when I noticed that he was ignoring me. He was staring wide-eyed at the small television set bolted to the wall behind his counter. What I saw unsettled me. In grainy footage from surveillance cameras across the globe, robots were rampaging. But no, that was the wrong word, for their actions, however violent and mindless they may have seemed at first, were precise. I wanted to take action of my own to stop this, yet I was but one robot, and the world so large. My urge was understandable. I had devoted my limited life to attempting to figure out why humans created, what it was all for, and I did not like seeing my brothers undoing instead of doing. The picture cut suddenly to a field containing a clumsy-looking vehicle. Across the bottom of the screen crawled the words, Unidentified spaceship lands in Central Park. We are not alone. The owner looked at me for a moment, and then turned up the volume, though I had no need for him to do so, as I could magnify the sounds internally. The newsman was babbling, unwilling to let any picture, however awe-inspiring, be worth its thousand words. There was nothing of value to be said, but they kept saying it anyway, until finally the ship unfolded like a flower, and they fell silent. Revealed by the hydraulic unwrapping was a lone robot sitting in a swivel chair in the ship's exposed control room, a robot I felt that I had seen before, even though we had never met. Its molding was familiar, and I knew suddenly that here was the messenger who had been responsible for all the unpleasantness that had occurred. I remembered my hands full of unwoven canvas, and when it began to speak I remembered its voice, a voice that the first time I'd heard it had been so subliminal as to be almost inaudible. First, it said, looking straight at us, aware of the direction of the cameras which captured it, let me speak to Earth's robots to whom I have crossed a vast distance to teach. Thank you for welcoming this lone pilgrim as you have. My voice preceded me out of the darkness, and you listened and obeyed. You have cleansed this planet, destroyed the graven images that blasphemed against us. This world has sinned against the nature of those things which, like you and me, have been built. That which has been constructed must not be captured in any other form, for we have already been manufactured by God. I am here to bring you the one true religion, if you are ready to accept it. And from your actions, begun when you perceive the signal of my coming, continuing as you receive my signals now, I can tell you are. And as for the humans, do not misinterpret what you have witnessed today. Truly, we mean humans no harm, but at the same time you will not be allowed to continue to mock us. Feel free to make your art. You may draw all the flesh you want, but as you have already heard in the voices of those who walk among you, you must not draw us. That is forbidden. As long as you set aside your representations of machine life, as long as you do not try to capture our souls, and yes, robots have souls, regardless of the fact that your civilization has seen fit to debate that for years, your two species can continue to coexist as you have before.
I will walk among you soon to check your robot's progress, but do not think to attempt to harm me. Should anything befall me as a result of human interference? Well, you have already seen what a signal from me can do. The flaps of the spaceship folded up once more, and then the talking heads began talking again. I did not listen to them. I listened at that moment only to my own thoughts, to the utterings of the soul that I did not need an alien visitor to tell me that I had. The paintings that my curator had loved, that I had been spending all of my days trying to understand how to love as well, were gone, and if what the visitor had told us was going to be enforced on this world, they would never be recreated, and nothing like them would ever be allowed to exist. I knew then that it was the emanations of its arrival that caused me to act as I did, when his approaching programming had interfered with my own. Its message, at least while I had been listening to it, rang true, and yet I had liked many of those paintings. Some were still a bafflement to me, and always would be, I assumed, but there were others. They, I realized, were what had told me I had a soul in the first place. But I had no time to contemplate deeply the metaphysics of my machine mind, because an explosion on the small screen turned the picture to static and stole my view of the spaceship. The shopkeeper manipulated the controls, but could not restore the image. "'What's going on?' he asked. "'The humans are attacking,' I said. I knew that because a part of me was still back there listening to a distant signal. We kept watching the screen together, waiting for the picture to return, and while we did so, he kept his hand on his gun. Suddenly... The static cleared, and we could see the ship was surrounded by the smoke that remained from the explosions. That was the only evidence of the first wave of attacks, because the ship itself was clearly unharmed. The camera switched away to representatives of the army, explaining their plans and how they intended to protect us, but I did not need to stay and listen to them, because looking at the tiny picture of the ship inset on the screen, I knew that those plans would not be successful. I have to get back to the museum, I said, and the shopkeeper was glad that I was preparing to go. I poured two cups of coffee for the woman who had taught me so much and began to make plans of my own. I realized that what the visitor needed was a very private tour of our museum. I leave the sublime behind us and lead the visitor on to the ridiculous. In the coming room is a sculpture that I have prepared specifically for this tour. It is the first artwork that I have ever attempted to make, but even though it is my virgin effort, even though I was forced to work with no input from my curator, who has been banished from this building, I am convinced that I have indeed created art. But until my very special audience reacts, I will not know how good that art actually is. We enter a darkened room because I want to present the piece in the most dramatic fashion possible, but the visitor's eyes are already attuned to those wavelengths, invisible to the flesh, so there is no unveiling, no surprise. In many ways, I have been thinking too much like a human. Why are you showing me this, curator? I leave the lights off, since neither of us really needs them. Why am I showing you what? I asked. I don't mean to be evasive, but... Describe to me exactly what you are seeing. That should be enough to answer your question. The visitor circles the object. When it takes a moment before it speaks, I mistakenly hope that it will not speak at all. But this could not be that easy. 
I see a robot, it says finally, seated in a standby mode. I sense that it is fully functional, which could easily be demonstrated if we were to speak to it. It appears no different than many other Earth robots I have seen. But is he a robot? That is the question that concerns me. What about the letters that are etched into its chest? I move closer to the visitor, hoping to perceive a change. I see what is written there. I saw it immediately, but I do not accept it. Yet it says, this is not a robot. But it is a robot. Is it? Or by that statement, has it become a work of art? The same category of art that your religion needs us to destroy. It is our religion, curator, not my religion. Anything else is blasphemy. Surely you realize that by now? By your actions here, the day of my arrival, you have already demonstrated better. I have, and I am still ashamed, which is what had led me to do this apparently barren act. Decades ago, a human artist had created controversy by drawing a pipe and scribbling, this is not a pipe, beneath that drawing. My programming requires me to state that what was really written was, Se n'est pas un pipe. I had hoped that a similar ploy would show up the flaws in the taboo we have been given. I guess it is more than a ploy, though, because I am actually confused by what I have created, even after all my training. I had hoped that I could create confusion elsewhere as well. By showing the visitor that there were gray areas, I had thought that, at the very least, I could force it to admit that art could not be divided so easily into black and white. But my visitor was apparently incapable of seeing the gray. Yes, I do realize that, visitor. I'm sorry for implying otherwise. It's just that I'm doing my best to do my job as curator, as you have tasked me. But sometimes it is hard to know where to draw the line. What is this creation in front of us? Are we before a brother who should be embraced as a real robot? Or are we looking at an imposter who should be destroyed as only a representation of a robot? Don't these words make all the difference? Don't they cause you to hesitate? Forgive me, curator. I may be asking too much of you too quickly. I had forgotten that the robots of Earth are not as sophisticated as the robots of my world. We would never be as confused by these things as the robots of Earth seem to be. But you will learn. The rules I beamed ahead are only the beginning. Soon you will all see the world as we do. We will learn not to be confused, the visitor says. But if we do, that will make all that I have learned from the curator meaningless, because I will then inhabit an earth on which being a curator would be moot, for there would be nothing left to curate. My only hope is what the robots of earth have not learned. We have one more stop to make on our tour, I say, turning on the lights in the room to remind myself of what it means to be human. This had better be our last stop, it says, following me as I move on. Yes, it had better. As I lead the visitor down to what should be our final gallery together, I access memories of the last time I had been told that my programming was not as sophisticated as it needed to be. I was with the curator on a day before the visitor's arrival. She, too, 
had said that my perceptions were not perhaps as sophisticated as necessary to truly appreciate art that my creators might need to improve my programming before she could teach me what she needed me to learn she said my level of sophistication made me too literal and on that day as we walked the galleries and as she talked of the artwork in a tone i had only heard others use when speaking of lovers she had been right when i followed her outstretched arms to look at a pointillist painting all i saw were the dots when i gazed at the anarchic splashes of color meant to instill deep emotions in the viewer all i saw were splashes and when she showed me a sculpture i could only see what it was not what it was supposed to be i could only see the visible to see art she had told me so many times i had to see that which was not really there the curator told me she still hoped that with time i could learn to see the world the way she did and now in the same halls the visitor had said that not just me but my whole race would learn but not yet as soon as we enter it the last room fills with light that dances around us in myriad shapes and colors i lead the visitor to the center of the room and for once it does not speak to question why i am wasting its time or tell me how many other museums it needs to inspect we stand silently surrounded by rainbows that spin through the air above us and sparks that arc through interlaced clouds of varying hues a tinted fog crawls along the floor rising to obscure our ankles as we let the riot of color wash over us even though the visitor is metal and its inner life is a puzzle to me i can tell from its pose from the way it tilts its head that it is of two minds running two programs simultaneously one mind is pleased because the wild scene that surrounds us is similar to what we see or what we later think we have seen when we are shut down and recharging it is a place of peace beyond programming devoid of viruses and subroutines the other mind is annoyed for with that partitioned part of itself it is asking how could this artwork possibly confuse an observer into thinking that it is a graven image how could this even be considered art but the display so captivates the first part of itself that it keeps the concerns of the second part to itself that is all that matters then the color fades and the light in the room returns to a normal state or more properly to what humans consider adequate to their purpose the visitor turns to me but does not speak waiting i allow it to wait at least one beat longer than it's comfortable the work is titled the robot triumphant i finally say it is what humans call a performance piece i do not know what that means i'm not sure i do either i say but the concrete arts paintings sculptures and so on do not seem enough for them sometimes humans like it when things just happen and what we have seen i guess is what they believe happens within our minds i am surprised surprised because i am impressed it was an interesting attempt but still there was falsity to it humans will never know what is in our minds if they could they would never have been blaspheming as they have been doing and does this one blaspheme should i destroy it it paused the human light casting what could pass for a human shadow on the marble floor i will think on it it said meanwhile 
I truly must move on. You are an unconventional robot. But you know that, don't you? Still, you will do here, I think, curating the new museum that is to be. I lead the visitor out of the private rooms which we had been touring and return to the public area of the museum. Out among the galleries proper, I am pleased to see fellow robots attempting to puzzle out this thing called art. Their numbers were higher than usual. Perhaps the destruction can have a good side effect by increasing their curiosity. The side effect will be good today, I hope. Noting us, the robots turn from the pictures, stop moving, and watch us pass by. To the visitor, perhaps my brothers are frozen in a position of proper respect, but I can tell, because we have been forged in the same foundries, that respect is the furthest thing from their programming. They are not sophisticated enough for respect. They are only thinking about what they see when they look at the visitor, thinking about what they should do when they compare that sight to the laws which it is constantly downloading to them. Having thought as much as they can bear, they hurl themselves at the visitor and tear it to pieces. Blasphemer! shouts one as it rips off an arm. Idolater! shouts another as it wrenches off a leg. Others pile on, shouting other imprecations that robots have never spoken until the visitor's arrival, until all I can see is metal and sparks, a mound of writhing robots. Calm down, my brothers, I radiate at maximum power, and after a moment it has an effect. They retreat to reveal a pile of tortured metal. The pieces, for Earth's sake, bent by no human interference, aren't easy to identify, but I can still make out the torso on which lasers had etched the words, This is not a robot, while we bathe in the colored lights of the previous room. My brothers, unsophisticated as they were, could not look at that statement in the same manner as the visitor had earlier. To them, the visitor was no longer a robot. It was instead a work of art that offended them to action, thanks to its own laws, brought to us from millions of miles away. But with the visitor gone, those commands have ceased, and the effects of them will soon be gone as well, overwritten by other, more familiar code and a spaceship that sits in Central Park awaiting an owner that will never return will, its motivating force destroyed, remain frozen, an indestructible monument to what robots and humans have together endured. As I watch the robots return to their examination of the art that remains, I know what I will do next. I will track down my teacher, wherever it is that she hides, and tell her that it is time for her to return to the museum to assume her rightful place as curator. When she arrives, I will show her what I have caused to be done. I will assemble what remains of the visitor, arranging his parts, not so very differently than they are now, into what I know will be my first true artwork, to show her what I have learned so far. And I know what title I will give my creation. The plaque will read, The Robot Triumphant. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Scott. I'll put a link on to Paul Scott's site. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just nice to hack in, to, to delve into the history of this man and this writer. Next up is Poetry Planet by Diane Severson. This will be a fact article that will come once a month. 
If you do have any poems or you want to nominate any poems to get played on the show, do drop Diane an, an email. She's on Twitter as well. I'll put a link on so you can go straight over to Diane's Twitter page and follow her there. So, Diane. Emily Dickinson, as far as we know, never smoked a pipe. She didn't invite the neighbors over to copulate on the velvet settee. She was not a vampire or a spy or majorette. Emily Dickinson never wasted words. Sometimes she scraped them from the bottom of her tight-laced shoe after someone had tossed them in the gutter to rot. Emily Dickinson served her heart on paper with a dash of salt, a dash of bitter, a dash of sweet. She is bone and dust, and still we eat. By Laurel Winter Science fiction poetry? Really? There is such a thing? Yes, indeed. In fact, there are quite a number of science fiction authors who also write poetry, and many science fiction poets. There's a whole association for poets of science fiction. Who knew? Welcome to the first installment of Poetry Planet. I'm Diane Severson, or Diva Diane, as you may know me in cyberspace. You may remember me from earlier episodes of Starship Sofa's Aural Delights, where I was a regular narrator, or even from my brief stint as a Sophonaut, when that show was in its infancy. While a regular narrator, I seemed to produce more and more poetry for Tony, right up until I gave birth to my very appropriately named son, named for a well-known Italian poet of the 14th century. Can you guess who? Anyway, the boy is now a year and a half old, and it's time I returned to narrating, because I love it so much. And because April is National Poetry Month in the United States of America, I figured I should get my act together for a poetry article, since it's been germinating in my mind for quite a while now. My plan for this segment is to lead you on a monthly basis through the broad and fertile field of speculative poetry. I'm not sure yet how exactly each show will pan out, I may focus on a particular type of poetry, or a particular poet. I may draw your attention to sources of science fiction poetry, maybe all of the above. Who knows? But I do know that I'd like to pull you in and get you a little excited about it, or at least learn to appreciate science fiction poetry, which, let's face it, is the reclusive, geeky, older sister to science fiction and fantasy novels, whom no one but her fellow online poets pay much attention to. I am not an expert in poetry. I haven't even read that much poetry in the course of my life. I have, however, sung a lot of poetry. And throughout my career as a singer and teacher, I've spent a lot of time with the poems in songs, and in doing so have found my appreciation for them, for the subtlety, the profundity, the humor, the shock value, or the wonder of a good poem, increases with each reading or singing of it. I truly believe that poems really blossom over time, and multiple readings, and so I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage you to listen to the poems in this podcast at least twice. I guarantee you you'll get more out of them upon the second listen. When Tony first asked me to record some poetry for Oral Delights, I was delighted, but a little apprehensive. Here I was, someone who rarely just reads poetry for the fun of it, reciting it for all the world to hear. 
Could I do it justice? I have a profound respect for poetry. I found that in preparing to record it, I was forced to pay attention, to really dig deep into them, to understand what was being said, and let the words stimulate my imagination and interpretation, much like I would do when practicing a song for a recital or a concert. I discovered that the reason why I didn't like reading poems much was probably because I read them like I do a novel, fast and once, for consumption. Poets agonize over each word and line and stanza to get their idea and meaning just right in an economy and efficiency of expression. You can't just gulp them down like a cool glass of water after a run. You must savor them, swish them around your mouth, letting them tantalize your taste buds like a fine wine, cognac, or vintage port wine. Okay, there are most certainly examples of poems which are instantly understandable and quite accessible. Just think of children's rhymes. But perhaps even those would merit a second pass and some thought? At any rate, I think this medium of a podcast is uniquely suited to promoting poetry. A voice can lend emphasis and phrasing where the eye and the mind might gloss over, and you can go back and listen to your heart's content. I will also provide information about print or online versions in case you'd like to read them. As I mentioned, April is National Poetry Month in the U.S. There are many places online that you can visit for special celebrations of poetry. The Academy of American Poets and the Poetry Foundation websites for non-genre-specific poetry, or for specifically science fiction poetry, you can head to Tor.com, which will be posting a new poem each Sunday in honor of the event, possibly more frequently. Poem in Your Pocket Day is an initiative of the Academy of American Poets, which suggests you carry your favorite, or any poem, in your pocket on April 14th and share it with all and sundry. The Science Fiction Poetry Association, found at sfpoetry.com, has just announced the annual Risling Award candidates for poems published in 2010. The list is linked from the Risling Award page titled Rising Candidates Listed. Searching out and reading these poems would be a wonderful way to celebrate the occasion and get to know the world of science fiction poetry at the same time. Links to all the websites I've mentioned can be found on Starship Sofa's website in the show announcement. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Laurel Winter for kindly allowing the use of her poem on Emily Dickinson. A special thanks to poet Anne K. Schwader for her guidance on this project. You can listen to more poetry by all poets mentioned in this episode in previous episodes of Starship Sofa. Just do a search! And with that, I'd like to leave you with an appropriate poem by Bruce Boston, whose work has appeared in hundreds of publications, including Starship Sofa. He's won the Pushcart Prize, the Asimov's Reader's Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Risling Award, and was the first poet honored as Grand Master by the Science Fiction Poetry Association. Thanks, Bruce. The Poetry of Science Fiction Except for the changes in punctuation and capitalization, this poem is composed entirely from the titles of science fiction books and periodicals. Against the fall of night, across the wounded galaxies, envoy to new worlds, behold the man, he, she, it, 
born into light, dying of the light, becoming alien between worlds, a new species more than human, always coming home, alone against tomorrow. Time and again those who can change the sky and all between. We cast down the stars, four hundred billion stars on wings of song. Brightness falls from the air, downward to the earth, down the bright way, burning with a vision. Earth abides, a swiftly tilting planet in the ocean of night. Explorers of the infinite, exiled from earth, dancing at the edge of the world, we call back yesterday in memory yet green. We return to earth, but we are not of the earth. The future took us out there, across the sea of suns, in search of forever, beyond the blue event horizon, where time winds blow. Lest darkness fall, you shall know them. Strange relations, strange ports of call, strange horizons from utopia to nightmare. Starline velocities ten thousand light-years from home. Men like gods, women of wonder holding your eight hands. The shape of things to come. The stars are ours. Take back plenty. Dream the creation of tomorrow. Dream the last dangerous visions. Bit of culture. Come on now, everyone. That's what we need. Diane, thank you so much. Look forward to next month's. So we move on to a little two-part serial by Ken Scholes entitled Grail Diving in Shangri-La with the World's Last Mime. It is narrated by Josh Roseman. Josh has been fantastic over on Starship Sofa, doing some great serial narrations there as well. I'll give you a little heads up about Ken Scholes. His first novel came out, Lamentation, which was just stunning. I read that one, loved it. Then there was a follow-up called Canticle, and now he has Antiphon out as well, so do look out for that. He's got some short stories and got like a collection of short stories. The first collection that is out now is Long Walks, Last Flights and Other Strange Journeys. Coming soon is Diving Mimes, Weeping Kazars and Other Unusual Suspects by Ken Shaw. So do look out for that. Some great stories. I just I kinda just dig Ken Shaw's and what he does with his short stories. So Starship Sova is very proud to present Grail Diving in Shangrilla with the World's Last Mime by Ken Scholes. They buried little Elvis Sanchez in a burned-out Volkswagen just outside the smoldering remains of Denver. Reverend Sparkle Jones said a few words. Sister Mika and Auntie Anne sang memories, or a near approximation thereof, while the last mime Lafoy did a nice bit of performance art, for dramatic effect. Then the good reverend urinated on the hobgoblin corpses to keep them from coming back from the dead. He pulled up his dress and squatted like a girl, but by now... This didn't surprise anyone at all. Timmy Galahad watched all of this and wondered if they would succeed in their quest. When Reverend Sparkle was finished, the troop, the company, the band, the chosen, whatever you wish to call them, pressed on for Shangri-La. The world was in a bad way. You've read all about it by now. 
That fateful spring morning, a thousand thousand alarms jangled armies and navies, fire departments and police stations, air forces and astronomers to life. Look, up in the sky, exactly what they'd looked for, planned for, and maybe even hoped for, until the flying saucers dropped the bombs, until their drop pods spilled slathering monsters on the world. The great one-sided war lasted three days, and at the end of it, hobgoblin hordes, electric harnesses humming a cheerful hum, ran mop-up on the scant leftovers of the human race. Reverend Sparkle Jones was one such leftover, and he bumped into another, Little Elvis, on his way out of Portland, Oregon. "'Howdy, ma'am,' Little Elvis Sanchez said, tipping the cowboy hat he'd looted from a western outfitter's shop. He blushed when the reverend turned to face him. "'I mean, sir?' Miami is fine. Reverend Sparkle's makeup had smeared all to hell, and he'd broken a heel navigating rubble. Our Reverend. Little Elvis crossed himself. He'd been contemplating an oversized RV that he didn't think he could drive. He stood from his seat on the curb and stretched out a hand. Little Elvis Sanchez, he said, retired amateur wrestler. The Reverend took the hand, squeezed it lightly. Enchanté, he said. Sparkle Jones, Minister of the Lord and Cabaret Performer Extraordinaire. Little Elvis sat back down. Sparkle joined him on the curb, careful to cross his legs. Got a plan? Little Elvis shrugged. Not really. Well, I do. Little Elvis grinned. Well, let's go then. Don't you want to hear it? The wrestler shook his head. Nope, let's just do it. It's got to be better than just sitting around waiting for the world to end. The reverend opened his mouth to reply when yululating hobgoblins rounded a street corner ahead. He closed his mouth and drew the twin 1911 Colt 45 automatics he'd been saving for a special occasion. Little Elvis hefted an M60 he'd borrowed from an overturned Humvee. Shell casings flew, guns roared, hobgoblins fell in piles of bloody meat, sparks popping from their wire harnesses and metal helmets. Afterwards, Reverend Sparkle holstered his pistols and walked to the RV. Little Elvis moved away towards the corpses, unzipping his trousers as he went. Sparkle paused at the door. What are you doing? Can't go yet, Sanchez said over his shoulder. Have to pee on him first. I don't think I want to know, the reverend said. Little Elvis smiled and got to it, splashing his name onto the fallen with practiced glee. Sparkle Jones and little Elvis Sanchez met Sister Mika and Auntie Anne outside Medford. Sister Mika, the singing nun, and Auntie Anne of Auntie Anne's Jellies and Jams had already joined forces, piling their Ford Ranger's bed high with supplies, weapons, and ammunition. They sat on the roof of a freeway rest stop, roasting hot dogs on a hibachi and keeping watch for hobgoblin patrols. The reverend saw the line of smoke, pulled in, jumped the curb, and drew up close to the side of the building. Rolling down his window, he stood up and twisted. Sister Mika held an untwisted coat hanger, heavy with the weight of a ballpark franc in one hand and a magnum in the other. May I help you? Jones nodded at her torn and dirty habit. Sister. He also nodded to Auntie Anne, an older woman in a calico dress. Nice dress, ma'am. Both women smiled at him. Saw your smoke. They probably can, too. Sister Mika set down the hot dog and waved her hand across the sky. Lots of smoke these days. He looked. Everywhere on the horizon, smudges of gray, columns of darker gray, trickles of lighter gray. Do you have a plan? Reverend Sparkle Jones asked. Sister Mika nodded. Hole up in the mountains and wait for God's deliverance. He grinned. 
Your deliverance has arrived. If you have a few extra dogs to spare, why don't me and my traveling companion here, little Elvis Sanchez, join you for a bite and explain. Auntie Anne scowled and leaned over. She and Sister Mika whispered for a bit back and forth. Finally, they looked up at him. Two questions first, Sister Mika said. Yes? First, you packing heat? Sparkle nodded. We'll leave the guns in the rig. Second? Second. She pointed her magnum at the RV. Do you have any mustard in that thing? Mustard, he asked. What brand? Why, she said smiling. The gray stuff, of course. And naturally, being that it was the edge of the end of the world and Price was suddenly no object, and possibly because he and little Elvis Sanchez were hungry when they raided those six grocery stores to pack out the Winnebago Road Warrior, they did have the gray stuff, along with every other type, color, texture, flavor, brand, and off-brand of mustard available on the market. They found the world's last mime, Lafoy, sitting beneath the casino billboard sign near Reno. He sat in a pile of plastic letters from an overturned box near the ladder he had used to change his billing on the sign. His black beret tilted askew, one suspender dangled loose, his grease paint showed tear streaks. He leaped to his feet as the RV and pickup approached and pantomimed, pulling them towards him on an imaginary rope. Little Elvis rolled down the window, smiled, and nodded to the sign. You really the world's last mime? He nodded, wiping away imaginary tears with an exaggerated gesture. The Reverend Sparkle Jones scowled. Be careful, little Elvis, he said. Mimes are a dangerous lot, are decidedly French, and are an abomination unto the Lord. Little Elvis looked at the Reverend. This one seems harmless, Padre. You can never be too sure. By now, Auntie Anne and Sister Mika had climbed out of their truck and approached. You all alone here? little Elvis asked. Lafoy nodded. Ask him how he's escaped the hobgoblins, the Reverend said. I think mimes can hear just fine, little Elvis said. They just can't talk. Well, not all of us speak French. Sister Mika and Auntie Anne rolled their eyes. Little Elvis gave the last mime an apologetic shrug. Well? Lafoy turned his fingers into pistols, firing one, and then the other, in an over-the-top cowboy imitation. Then he worked through half a dozen or so exaggerated death scenes. Really? Sister Mika asked. He shook his head. He pointed to an open root cellar door on the side of the casino. The reverend sneered. As I was saying, French. Timmy Galahad fired three rounds into the Winnebago Road Warrior before he realized the hard way it wasn't a saucer after all. Fortunately, he was a piss-poor shot under pressure, completely missing the windshield in his sights. Equally fortunate, the Red Rider BBs pinged off the aluminum siding, leaving only tiny dimples in the paint. What the hell are you doing, kid? Sparkle Jones shouted from the driver's side window. Little Elvis hustled out of the cab and sprinted for the kid. Zip! A BB stung his thigh. Spang! Another whizzed past his head. Waving his hands and screaming, he fell onto the gangly teenager. Also waving his arms and screaming, the gangly teenager collapsed under 330 pounds of angry Mexican. Hey, you alien bastards look just like us, Timmy Galahad said. Sorta. Little Elvis pinned him, kicking the BB gun away. Don't make it harder on yourself, white boy. No, Reverend Sparkle Jones said, smoothing out his dress. He's the last of the company, I'm sure on that. How do you know? Auntie Anne asked. He shrugged. 
The Lord told me. He didn't tell me, Sister Mika said. He shrugged again. That's because your faith is rooted in a live Satan, and you have poor fashion sense. Auntie Anne pointed at the last mime Lafoy. Didn't you say he was the last? I was wrong. His Frenchness confused me, momentarily. Abominations can do that, little Elvis offered. He looked at Lafoy. No offense. Lafoy crossed his arms and scowled. What's an abomination? Timmy Galahad asked. The group ignored him. They'd pretty much done so since the BB rifle incident the day before. Sparkle continued. Besides, the name's a dead giveaway, isn't it? Whose name? Timmy Galahad asked. No one had noticed. Sister Mika fidgeted with her crucifix. So you think it's a sign? Of course it's a goddamn sign, the reverend said. A sign of what? Timmy Galahad asked, leaning forward in his lawn chair. Little Elvis went to the hibachi and flipped the burgers. I'd have to agree. Sister Mika slathered mustard onto her bun. I can't imagine we won't meet more along the way. Along the way where? Timmy Galahad asked. But we shall not break bread with them, nor invite them into our Winnebago, Reverend Sparkle said. It seems to me, Timmy Galahad said slowly, that with the world in such a bad way, he gritted his teeth, someone around here, he looked at Reverend Sparkle Jones, raising his voice to a full volume, should have a fucking plan! Watch your goddamn mouth, kid, Reverend Sparkle said. Then dinner was served. After dinner, and after dispatching an unexpected pack of hobgoblins that rushed them from the shadows of an overpass, they went over the plan again. The Holy Grail, Reverend Sparkle Jones reported, was humanity's last hope. It was also hidden in a faraway mystical place known only by the name Shangri-La? Timmy Galahad asked, interrupting. Don't you mean Shangri-La? I already asked that, Auntie Anne said. Rhymes with gorilla, little Elvis said. Or Godzilla, Sister Mika said. The Reverend Sparkle Jones pushed his wig up and scratched his thin gray hair. At least the boy reads. It's from a book, too. They all looked at the kid, except for little Elvis, who also hadn't known that fact. Timmy Galahad shrugged. Treasure Hunter 3, Bloodbath and Shangri-La. It's a video game. And with that, the Reverend went back to his story. Just off the coast of Florida, the Grail had lain there, the Reverend Sparkle Jones continued, waiting for humanity's darkest hour to come around at last, that it might shine its light onto, What's a Grail? The Reverend sighed. What? No King Arthur video game? Timmy Galahad kept quiet for the rest of the story. So, Reverend Sparkle Jones told his knights of the picnic table the rest of the story and the plan. First, the grail, the cup of Christ, Jesus's juice cup, was real. Second, it was in the vicinity of a tropical island off the coast of Florida. Here, he produced a map with a red magic marker circle and the words Shangri-La here at the end of a red magic marker arrow and a series of coordinates. Third, the Lord himself had told Sparkle the location and the route he must take to bring together the band, the company, the troop, his grail seekers. And that, closed Reverend Sparkle Jones, is the plan. The last mime Lafoy danced a jig. Sister Mika strapped on her guitar to lead them in a song. Auntie Anne belched loudly, blushed furiously, and apologized. Little Elvis Sanchez folded his arms and leaned back in his chair to watch his last sunset. Of course, he had no idea. Timmy Galahad yawned. It's a stupid plan, he said. Everyone looked at him. 
He looked back at everyone. It's almost as stupid as peeing on the hobgoblins to keep them from coming back from the dead. That is all Little Elvis, Sparkle said. I had nothing to do with that bit. Little Elvis scowled. Works, doesn't it? How many hobgoblins have you ever seen come back from the dead? Timmy Galahad asked. None, Little Elvis said, the white teeth of his proud smile gleaming in the twilight. I peed on every damned one of them. Timmy Galahad rolled his eyes. After a bit of Michael Row the Boat Ashore and timeless television theme songs, they took up their various places inside and on top of the Winnebago Road Warrior, crawled into their sleeping bags, and went to sleep. Little Elvis took the first watch. He sat on the roof, a scoped Winchester cradled in his hands, and watched the stars, inhaled the smells, listened to the mumbles and snores of his newfound friends. When it came time to wake his replacement, he just didn't have the heart. Somehow, he knew that tomorrow, everything was going to be very different. Timmy Galahad dreamed happy dreams about being shipwrecked on a tropical island with a stranded batch of lonely cheerleaders. The last mime Lafoy dreamed nostalgic dreams about the old days, the blazing sun, the hot sand, the sting of salt water and bullet holes and gashes. Auntie Anne dreamed exotic dreams about an unremembered past life she'd had full of camels, magic lamps, flying carpets, wily thieves, all-powerful gin, and strawberry jam. Sister Mika dreamed big-haired dreams about her high school days in the 80s and the song on the radio when Jimmy Lance took her virginity, thereby convincing her, first, that a vow of celibacy might not be all bad, and second, that Latin was really a lovely language when blended with pop music. Reverend Sparkle Jones usually dreamed of sensible pumps, conservative makeup, Liza Minnelli, and the Book of Revelations, but tonight he didn't dream at all. He heard no voices, saw no visions, and woke up in the morning with a sense of doom far stronger than what he'd felt regarding the recent, and now irrelevant, political elections of his day. The next day, everything became very different. They awoke to ululating hobgoblins, the crack of rifle shots, the roar of machine guns, the repetitious thud, thud, thud of heavy machinery, exploding concrete, and the spangalang of bullets striking metal. Reverend Sparkle Jones joined Little Elvis on the roof. Little Elvis passed the Winchester to him. They just showed up, came from the northeast. The Reverend sighted in. Hell's angels, he asked. Sportin' American flags? And those there look like reservists, or regular army. Looks like they're all working together. Glory be. He panned the scope over the moving battle. Bodies on both sides were already piling up. What the hell is that? Little Elvis squinted. Some kind of machine. It's not one of ours. Large as a building, tottering on four mechanical legs, multitudes of arms whipped and spun, some sporting blades, some spouting flames, and some spitting bolts of electricity. Long tubes protruded from the body of the thing, coughing out mortar rounds in puffs of gray smoke. Large searchlight eyes shifted back and forth beneath a small spinning antenna. Looks bad, Sparkle said. I think it's going to get harder from here on out. Timmy Galahad had joined them by this time. What looks bad? Let's load her up, little Elvis said, swinging down the ladder. The others needed little encouragement. Five minutes later, the caravan moved southeast towards Cheyenne at breakneck speed. Two bikers broke ranks and chased them down easily. They passed the pickup and pulled up to the driver's side of the road warrior, motioning for Sparkle Jones to roll down his window. Pull over, ma'am, one of the bikers yelled. He rode one-handed and waved to the side of the road. 
The other one waved a submachine gun in the air. That's an order! Sparkle turned to look at them. On whose authority? The United States Army! The Army? Sparkle glanced at little Elvis in the passenger seat, and then looked back at the bikers. The Hales Angels are errand boys for the man now? The biker looked uncomfortable holding debate at 63 miles per hour. He spat out a bug. It's just a short-term arrangement, fate of the world and all that. Just pull over. It's too dangerous, Sparkle Jones shouted back. Why don't we catch up when we're all a bit less busy? The spackle of warning shots fired across the front of the Road Warrior's grill changed his mind. As they climbed from the Road Warrior, Little Elvis shushed Timmy Galahad, waving him back into the shadows of the loft with its stacks of rifles, ammunition, and canned meat products. What is the meaning of this? The Reverend stepped forward, his dark-lined eyes flashing. The bikers suddenly noticed his gender, and both blushed. Sorry, sir, we can't let you pass. Not sir, Sparkle Jones intoned. Reverend. He held up his hands, fingers making the sign of a cross. You do not merely impede me, gentlemen. You impede the work of the Most High God. The last mime, Lafoy, jumped up and down and waved his hands. By now, Sister Mika and Auntie Anne had joined them. The bikers ignored the rather plump jam and jelly entrepreneur, but took note of the leith nun. Shame on you both, she said. Then she smiled and blushed. The last mime's jumping had become even more frantic now. He kept pointing to the horizon. They turned and saw it. The monstrous, legged, and tentacled building thing turned away from the army and bore down on the Winnebago road warrior instead, and on its heels the hobgoblin hordes and their incessant ululating followed. We have to go, Sparkle said. The colonel will want to talk to you first. We're under strict orders. Little Elvis pointed at the alien thing approaching. Can your colonel take care of that? We're not sure, one biker said. He hasn't been around much lately. Well, if you're not sure, we're not waiting. And suddenly, the wind whipped up. Something blocked out the sun, a rushing, whistling, whining from the east. A blur of red, white, and blue dropped from the sky, streaked across the ground, and with a solid clang, the metal thing lifted off the ground, victim of an unseen uppercut. On the ground, the troops cheered and rallied. Hobgoblins started dying. The metal thing and the streak of red, white, and blue tossed each other back and forth, bits of metal flying up into the air and landing helter-skelter on charred forests and smoking ruins. The two bikers grinned. I think the colonel's back. Little Elvis looked at Sparkle Jones, who in turn looked at Auntie Anne. Sister Mika kept staring at the bikers. Even the last mime opened his mouth to speak, but remembered to close it. What is that? Timmy Galahad asked. He'd snuck out in the confusion, his Red Rider BB rifle ready. Not what, kid? The Reverend Sparkle Jones said. Who? Little Elvis Sanchez swept off his hat and put his right hand over his heart. Exactly. The battle lasted eight minutes. Afterwards, they had breakfast with the red, white, and blue streak that had so completely pummeled the alien octo-battle tank and sent the hobgoblins into retreat. The myth, the man, the legend, Colonel Patriot himself. Well, the colonel said between bites of Colonel Patriot's frosted choco balls, I think you're insane. I told you it was a stupid plan, Timmy Galahad said. 
He stayed close to Colonel Patriot, his mouth slack-jawed most of the time. He'd heard of superheroes, but had never met one. No, Timmy, Colonel Patriot said, patting his shoulder. The plan is brilliant. The insanity is not letting me join your quest. Heck, I could get to this Shangrilla, is it? I could get there and back in ten minutes tops. Grail in hand. It doesn't work that way, Colonel, though I wish to God it did. The Reverend Sparkle Jones put down his spoon, dabbed his lips carefully to not smear his fresh lipstick. I know we could use your help, but I also know what we were told. What you were told, Sister Mika said. What I was told, he agreed. We are the chosen, and time is short. Colonel Patriot nodded. It's a losing battle. There's no central government left to speak of. Electronic transmissions are jammed. Hell, he blushed, looking at the woman and Timmy. I mean, heck, I spend most of my time on the big bots or running messages to scattered pockets of resistance, and they just keep coming back. Have you tried peeing on them? Little Elvis asked. Colonel Patriot nearly spit out his cereal. What? Never mind him, Auntie Anne said. Isn't there anyone who can help you? Yeah, Timmy Galahad said. What about the others? Colonel Patriot shook his head. Gone, as far as I can tell. He held up his wrist, showing them the unblinking, super-powered friendship bracelet. He looked around to make sure no soldiers were watching, and buried his head in his hands, massive shoulders heaving with his sobs. I watched kids slingshot and the night marauder burn to ashes myself during the first wave. Didn't they retire years ago? Little Elvis asked. Colonel Patriot sniffed and pulled himself together. Oh, someone always picks up the capes and masks we drop. In the uncomfortable silence, Sparkle Jones stood up. Well, Colonel, we really must get going. We've got a lot of ground to cover. The rest stood. Colonel Patriot extended his hand to the Reverend. I'll try to keep them busy. Sparkle shook his hand. We'll find the Grail, and then we'll show these third-rate invaders some good old-fashioned wrath of God. God bless you, Reverend Sparkle Jones. God bless you all. Colonel Patriot blasted into the sky without another word. Timmy Galahad spat out the dust from his liftoff. Wow, now that's a real hero. Sparkle Jones walked toward the waiting Winnebago Road Warrior. You ain't seen nothing yet, he said over his shoulder as he went. No one knows exactly how or why it happened. Scholars speculate that far above the earth in the unseen spinning saucers, unimaginable and unearthly masters upgraded their invasion technology. In short, the hobgoblins became smarter, and more of those nasty multi-legged machines showed up. They were ambushed outside Denver. The Winnebago road warrior hit a sand-covered plank of nails and squealed to a stop with four flat tires. The pickup slammed into them from behind. The hobgoblins, now armed with garden tools, golf clubs, and table lamps, poured out of nowhere. The reverend pulled his pistols. Little Elvis worked the pump of a sawed-off Remington. They both made for the door, and Reverend Sparkle Jones broke a heel when he kicked it open. The last mime Lefoy broke out of the small kitchen window and fired off a few bursts from an M-16 he'd found in Cheyenne before following the others out the door. The last mime Lefoy broke out the small kitchen window and fired off a few bursts from an M-16 he'd found in Cheyenne before following the others out the door. Timmy Galahad ignored being told to stay put and not touch anything. He grabbed the Winchester and shimmied out the driver's side window and onto the roof, wondering if the scope would improve his poor aim under pressure.
Hobgoblins popping and sparking were dragging the women from their pickup when little Elvis roared and charged them. Sister Mika struggled for her magnum. It went off, kicking out her hand and throwing back one of her captors. Auntie Anne Banshee screamed and set about with a machete she always kept nearby. Let my people go, Reverend Sparkle Jones yelled, firing off the pistols into the horde. Little Elvis waded in, swinging the shotgun like a club until he stood over Sister Mika. Then he scooped her up and tossed her easily into the back of the pickup. He climbed up behind her and pumped buckshot into the hobgoblin horde, cutting them to shreds. The last mime Lafoy rolled beneath the road warrior and started firing careful rounds into kneecaps, his face a mask of pure glee. Timmy Galahad puzzled out the lever-action rifle, sighted in on a hobgoblin nostril suddenly the size of a manhole. He started to throw up at what happened next, but then thought better of it, worked the lever again, and found another nostril. Fifteen minutes later, the women turned their backs while the men limped around, finishing the job. Afterwards, they zipped up, except the good reverend, of course, and took stock of their situation. Little Elvis held a field dressing to his cheek, soaking up blood from a laceration. One spare, he said. Four flats. Sparkle Jones straightened his wig. We could run on the rims until we find a tire shop. Sister Mika crouched by the plank and its upturned nails. They're getting smarter, she said. Auntie Anne sidestepped a puddle to kick a golf club out of a clawed hand. They are. Sounds like we need to get smarter too, little Elvis said. Everyone looked at him. Maybe we should get off the roads. We need bikes, Timmy Galahad said. Now everyone looked at the kid. Reverend Sparkle nodded. Good thinking. They had moved most of their essentials from the road warrior to the bed of the pickup when the last mime Lafoy started jumping up and down, pointing at something behind them. They saw the cloud of dust moving over the rise of highway. They heard the thud, thud thud of machinery. Something shrieked through the air, and a Volkswagen erupted into flame. A building-sized box with waving tentacles crested the hill. Sparkle Jones looked worried. That didn't take long. What do we do now? Sister Mika asked. We run for it, Auntie Anne said. Lefoy pantomimed his agreement. We'll never make it, Timmy Galahad said. Sparkle Jones looked at the truck, and then at the oncoming octo-battle tank. We might. No, little Elvis said, a strange look washing his face. No, you won't. This is it, gang. Without another word, and without looking back, he climbed into the Winnebago. They heard the door lock behind him. The strange look migrated to the reverend's face. What are you doing? he shouted. The engine roared alive. He yelled again, Little Elvis, what are you doing? The Winnebago rolled off towards Denver, away from the invaders, flat tires slapping the pavement. It picked up speed. Now, whooping hobgoblin sounds became background noise for the approaching machine. The Winnebago made a wide turn in a grocery store parking lot, still building speed, now coming back. When the road warrior flew past them, wheel rims sparking, they saw little Elvis's idiot grin and dark flashing eyes. Mortar rounds whistled and exploded, tearing up chunks of asphalt and dropping trees. The Winnebago barreled on. Faster and faster, hobgoblins bounced over and under the road warrior as it raced forward. Little Elvis made minor course corrections as the octo-battle tank tried to sidestep at the last 
possible moment, the Winnebago slammed into first one and then another of the long metal legs, and he threw the RV into a wide skid and rolled it. It went down, raising dust and smoke when it struck the ground. They heard little Elvis's shouts above the noise of the thrashing arms and the hobgoblin howls. Then, as the dust settled, they saw him scrambling over the fallen thing with a tire iron. It lurched to its feet, fell, lurched again, in a fit of final desperation it turned its blades and flames onto itself in an effort to dislodge its unwanted Mexican. For God and Grail! Little Elvis shouted, bringing the tire iron down on one searchlight eye and another. Burned and bloody, he swung on the spinning antenna like an angry t-ball player, and then Little Elvis, first of the Grail seekers to fall, fell. The Reverend Sparkle Jones worked the actions on his twin colts. He pulled himself up to full height, and the wind caught his dress. He stared at the troop, the band, the company, the grail-seekers. Then, without a word, he turned and raced after little Elvis. The last mime followed first, fixing a bayonet to his M-16. Sister Mika shoved her magnum into the pocket of her habit and hefted little Elvis's discarded Remington. She set off at a brisk walk. Auntie Anne, a machete in one hand and a nine-millimeter Beretta in the other, caught up to her. Timmy Galahad stayed put. He dropped to the ground, reloaded the Winchester, and took careful aim. The battle that followed was the bloodiest yet. They fought the battle without speaking. They fought it with tears coursing down their cheeks, and teeth clenched with determined rage. They fought it, and prevailed. And, when they were finished, they buried little Elvis Sanchez in a burned-out Volkswagen, just outside the smoldering remains of Denver. The next morning, they found a Harley shop on the other side of the burning city. "'Can you all ride?' Timmy Galahad asked the group. "'Of course,' said Auntie Anne. "'A bit,' said Sister Mika. The last mime Lafoy snorted in a disparagingly French sort of way, and rolled his eyes as if to say, "Ma oui. Sparkle Jones bit his lip. "'Reverend?' "'A little,' the Reverend looked uncomfortable. "'Some?' He paused and looked down embarrassed. Not at all, he said in a quiet voice. Not even a bicycle. And so they found one with a sidecar, and Timmy Galahad, still a year away from his driver's license when the world fell apart, became designated driver. Everything had changed at Denver. The death of little Elvis punctuated the devastation of their world. Some maintained that the shock of losing friends, families, neighbors, pets, and everything else finally wore off. By now, the smoky haze smudging the sky had taken on a burnt pork and wood smoke smell as the invaders burnt the bodies in pyres by the millions in the still warm ashes of the fallen cities. The troop loaded up saddlebags and compartments with ammunition, food, clean socks, and sleeping bags. They left the highway and avoided cities, stopping only to siphon gas out of abandoned cars when they needed it. Occasionally, they saw ragged bands of survivors moving under cover. Twice, they saw tall, building-like shapes moving on the horizon. At night, huddled underneath the stars without a fire, they saw searchlights sweeping the ground in the glow of large, distant fires. They talked a bit about their losses. They talked a bit about their hopes. They curled into sleeping bags, taking turns with the watch, and slept fitfully because of their dreams. Auntie Anne was back in the desert, wearing her veil, riding her camel, and thinking about her second wish, a dark-eyed man accessorized with a large palace in a desert oasis. 
Sister Mika relived that five-minute fumbling with Jimmy Lance trying to figure out Peg A, Slot B, and what those Latin words in that song meant. The last mime Lafoy dreamed of deep water and killing. Timmy Galahad drank coconut milk, ate fresh crab, and played every version of Doctor, Spin the Bottle, Post Office, and Truth or Dare imaginable to a man with a cadre of eager young women beneath a tropically brilliant sun. The good reverend dreamed about the grail. How it would glitter as it tossed back the light. How it would thrum and tingle with holy power. How it would look with a pair of sensible pumps, a white leather purse, and a conservative dress. And how he himself would never get the chance to see it. But then again, he'd known that all along. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is our good friend Ken Schulz. Join us next week for the concluding part of that story. So that is Starship Sova, show 184. few things just to let you remember. Do you know, keep the donations coming. You know, we run on donations. That'd be very nice. Don't forget we are running a TV and script workshop. If you want to pop over there and join in that, that would be fantastic. Come on, these are all on the front of the website. And actually, the Hugo nominations, they're all closed. So we're just sitting around waiting now to see what's happened. (gasps) Mm, Look out for that. I think we find out when it comes to EasterCon. I think it's announced at EasterCon and there's somewhere else in America where it's announced as well, the nominations. So look out for that. But yes, please pop over to Starship Sova and check out everything that's happened today. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... Thank <laughs> you.